The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we look at the old masters, the sale of a major Botticelli in New York and the latest developments in the saga of Leonardo's Salvatore Mundi. This week in New York, Sotheby's held its highest value old master sale of all time, with a prize Botticelli and an initial estimate of $142 million. That's before a few lots were withdrawn. So, as the coronavirus crisis continues, is this really a good moment to sell old masters? Art market journalist Scott Rayburn tells us about the results of the sale and the old masters market more generally. And Alison Cole, the editor of the art newspaper, explains the latest findings about Salvatore Mundi, the Leonardo painting that sold at Christie's in 2017 for $450 million. And for this episode's Work of the Week, the artist Gerard Byrne talks about a diorama in the Biological Museum in Stockholm, which inspired Byrne's series of photographs, Beasts. Before all that, you have just three days to take advantage of the art newspaper's January sale. Say 30% when you purchase a digital subscription before the end of January. The subscription includes full access to our website and our iOS app for iPhone and iPad. The promo code is WAX121. That's W-A-X-121. Now, a Botticelli portrait this week smashed the auction record for the early Renaissance artist. Portrait of a young man with a roundel hammered at $80 million at Sotheby's in New York, or $92.1 million with fees. The previous record for Botticelli was relatively low, $10.4 million set in 2013 by the so-called Rockefeller Madonna. The portrait of a young man had last come to auction in 1982, and its attribution to Botticelli was then doubted by Everett Fahey, then the director of New York's Frick Collection, who declared it to be by Francesco Botticini, a follower of Botticelli. Fahey apparently later changed his mind, and now the work is widely agreed to be a Botticelli. But while that work achieved the price it was expected to, a small but luminous Rembrandt painting, Abraham and the Angels, from 1646, which had an estimate of 20 to $30 million, was withdrawn at the last minute. As we recorded the podcast, Sotheby's had not yet given an explanation for its withdrawal. I spoke to Scott Rayburn, a contributor to the art newspaper and the New York Times, immediately after the sale, about whether it's a risk to bring these works to auction now, amid the pandemic, and what it tells us about the market for the old masters in general. Scott, before we talk about the particular lots that came up at Sotheby's today, um, I wanted to ask you about the old master market in general. And obviously the fact that here we are in the middle of a pandemic, and we're in an economic crisis. Does it make sense to bring these kind of lots to auction at this time? Well, this is Sotheby's New York. It's their big old master sale. Everyone wants to consign to this sale. This is the moment. Uh, The market, all the dealers and people I speak to in in that world say New York is where everyone wants to sell. They have only only one sale a year, evening sale at and that was the time to sell. And of course, the pandemic's been going on for nearly a year now in terms of restrictions on auctions. Sotheby's have created an incredibly slick format for this hybrid live stream sale, uh, and it seems to be working well. The thing about Old Masters, of course, is this isn't contemporary art. 
it's an unfashionable collecting field and it was always going to be a real test for that collecting field in the current environment. That That's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because, of course, the Leonardo... So, and, of course, the Leonardo lot, the Salvatore Mundi, was very, very unusual. So we have to caveat everything with that. Sure. But Christie's, when they sold that, put that into the contemporary sale. Utterly, yeah. And I wondered how you feel about whether old master lots might do better in more mixed fields versus the traditional old master sale. And who dictates that? But with the Salvatore Mundi, my understanding was that it was just a brainwave by the genius auctioneer, uh, Loic Gauzer, uh, thinking, well, let, let's put it in a contemporary sale. It's such a strange object. Um, if it's an old master sale, then people just pick it to bits and criticise it. In a contemporary sale, people will just be looking at the image. And of course, Christie's marketing machine went into absolute overdrive and they marketed it absolutely brilliantly uh, using the, the, the typeface of the Dan Brown novel to promote it. Um, you know, they pulled out every stop and it worked sensationally well. Whether you the extent to which you can do it again is is quite really questionable because that is, as you point out, an utter outlier, the, the self-dormundi, in, in every respect. But what was interesting about the marketing of, of this sale at Sotheby's is, once again, the sophistication of the marketing. With every lot, the work was shown online, hanging on a white wall in a contemporary-style interior where you'd expect a Damien Hirst to hang. And then there would be, to, to further reassure the contemporary-minded buyer or the Asian buyer, there was a very attractive, coolly-dressed Asian girl standing next to the painting in a contemporary interior. Either that or walking. The hilarious thing about this marketing ploy is that in both cases, they weren't actually looking at the picture. They were just standing there. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was clearly a piece of marketing to reassure contemporary art buyers. But it was very smart and slick and clever. And, they, and they're pulling out this stuff. They're incredibly inventive about it. Um, because you have to be with, with old masters. Because the problem with old masters is that, that there are so few brands that people really want to buy. You know, I wrote down a list. Uh, you might add one or two, but I can only think of 10 household brands that, that a, a billionaire would want to buy in any city in the world. I, I, I've got Leonardo, Michelangelo, Vermeer, Velasquez, Rubens, Goya, Rembrandt, Caravaggio, Botticelli, which we'll come to, and Turner, because Turner's been pulled in the old master sales. You wouldn't even put Titian in there? I thought I'd forgotten someone. <laughs> of course I would, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's a very small group of artists to work with, with where with the contemporary and modern, you've got hundreds of artists that have proven track records. And then the second problem is that you have this small group of brand artists, but all the good stuff is gone. So you, when they do come up, you, you often have second or third rate or questionable pieces by a major name. Or the other commercial lots are just a, a sensational image that everyone likes. And you can sell a, a cool image that appeals to contemporary sensibility pretty well. But these are, it's not much to work with, really. You know, when you speak to old master art dealers, again, then the phrase comes up, well, we're scraping the barrel and they wistfully look back at catalogues from the 1970s and 80s. Um, and this is why I, I looked up the figures 
in 2019, which was the last year of sort of proper pre-COVID trading, European old masters represented only 16% of the entire auction market. And when you think back to, say, the 1970s, old masters absolutely dominated the, the, the top prices. So it's a big change. So that makes the Botticelli a particularly important lot then, because it is you know, now widely, despite what happened in 1982 when it was sure. when it was last sold at auction, where there was a dispute over its attribution, this one is, it is now regarded as firmly a Botticelli and therefore it's it was going to be a high profile lot. And they, so, they, so they had to do, get that marketing right because it's such a rare lot, right? Exactly. It's a, it's, you know, it's a brand trophy old master and they are very, very rare. And the, the old master market really doesn't sort of work without the occasional lot like this to create excitement and drama and interest right so let's talk about the the actual sale then I watched it and I suppose this is probably because there's just so few people who have that kind of money but it felt a bit damp to me the sale I was I was hoping for a bit of theatre and there were a couple of bidders and eventually it sold for what everybody widely expected it to sell for right I know it's I I would a word I would use is was pretty flat it was actually like pretty much any old master sale of the last 15 years, really. A third of the lots were either withdrawn or unsold. And generally, when they're withdrawn, that implies there just isn't any interest. And that's a pretty high percentage compared to contemporary, particularly compared to contemporary art sales, where where unsold lots are really pretty rare. So it's a completely different market. It's a difficult market um, because... they're very tricky paintings to deal with because they're all the problems of condition. The iconography is unfamiliar. They're very old. We live in an increasingly contemporary, digitally dominated culture. And they, with every passing year, they just seem a bit more remote. That's interesting. So the Botticelli, it sold for 80 million. Yeah. And do we know yet, do we have any indication who it might have sold to yet? Well, it attracted just two bids. And uh, the winning bidder was Lilia Sitnika, who is deals with client relations with Russians in London. Now, one automatically assumes that, OK, she's bidding for a, for a Russian oligarch. That may well be the case. Uh, but you can't automatically assume it because sometimes very wealthy art collectors use telephone bidders that imply a certain nationality just to guarantee their own anonymity really right throw us off the scent throw us off the scent but i i would i would assume it's 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 a, a very rich russian yeah and the, the the with premium the price is 92.2 million but it's interesting because it, very unusually the painting wasn't guaranteed at this price level generally wealthy people want to make sure that the thing sells can you just can you just explain to listeners again just briefly what guaranteed means and how it works you have a very, very expensive picture, generally worth over 100 million. You're nervous that it doesn't sell and gets burned, as, as they call it in the, in the trade, so you, it's very difficult to sell again. So you're faced with the dilemma, do I not have a guarantee and, and take as much money as possible, or do I get a guaranteed sale and then allow the auction house and generally a third party to share some of what's called the upside, any bidding that goes beyond the the um, agreed minimum price. Now, the, the most celebrated example was the Salvador Mundi, 
which was guaranteed at about, I think at about 120 million, including the premium. And of course, it made 450. Um, now, we don't know for certain, but uh, it's it's been reported that the guarantor made $135 million just for saying bid once on the telephone, which is pretty nice work. I'd like to do that. <laughs> so I think that the, the, the owner of, of the Botticelli was um, a guy called Sheldon Solo, who was a, a notoriously tough real estate uh, developer in, in New York. And he bought it back in 1982 for the, the, that lower estimate price of about 1.3 million. But the things I gather through the grapevine that it was probably going to come to market back in about 2005 with an estimate of around, well, I heard 50 and I heard 80. So they're not unadjacent price. But I also heard that he would, was never going to take a guarantee, even in 2005, because essentially he wanted to take all the money. And now this is only rumour and everything's off the record, but the people I spoke to were quite close to the transactions at the time. And he said, the only way you can sell this painting for me is if I have the entire hammer price and all the buyer's premium. So he take he was going to take everything. I would be quite surprised if, if that uh, arrangement changed by the time Sotheby's sold it this time round. So I would be surprised if Sotheby's made a lot of money out of this. They probably made a loss because with all the expenses of marketing. On the other hand, it's terrific publicity for, for Sotheby's and it attracts other trophy lots. But I, I gather Mr. Sir, I, he's died now, but I'm sure his, his heirs and, and the executors of his will in the state are pretty tough as well. And um, I think they, the family got a pretty good deal. So they probably got all that 92.2 million, which is nice for them. So, which then further deepens the mystery that, that it was, the current mystery we, we may find out in, in the coming days around the Rembrandt that was also part of this sale that was a, a very tiny but very beautiful Rembrandt that yes. was going to be sold, we think, for somewhere between 20 and $30 million, yeah. which was withdrawn very late in the day. And obviously if part of the reason why Sotheby's would have gone for the Botticelli was to attract trophy lots of the kind of the Rembrandt, yeah, and then that was withdrawn. Then that must be pretty disappointing. Yes, it's my understanding. I think was that it was guaranteed by a third party, and I'm I'm sort of scratching my adult brain for another example of a fully guaranteed painting being withdrawn because the deal is there. Surely the money's on the table. Uh, the contract's been signed. Um, that's a pretty unusual occurrence, I think. And I'm at a loss to explain it. But the, the, with every passing year, the auction process becomes more and more obscure, more and more opaque, and we don't really know what's going on. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is a disadvantage to podcasts like ours. But um, it's, it's, it's hopeless. But I, I spoke to a dealer as soon as we learned that it had been withdrawn, and he was absolutely mystified as well. It's intriguing, isn't it? I mean, let's talk a bit more widely because obviously Sotheby's have had a pretty clear run at 
Masters Week, as it's being called. Christie's, there have been some old master prints, for instance, on, in an online sale. Mm. Um, but there haven't been any. It, there hasn't been any really stiff competition for the Botticelli and and and, and, the, and the Rembrandt this week. So, mm. um, is this a pattern? Do you think? Do you think it's especially in the pandemic that you'll you'll see big sales at the major auction houses given bit, a bit of clear space around them in order to, to sort of generate more funds? Well, this is traditional scheduling in terms of the calendar. Um, Sotheby's have a clear run in, in January and then Christie's will, will have a sale in the summer at Civil Sotheby's and then Christie's have a sale, I think, in December. But the thing is with the pandemic, the calendar is is just being revised all the time. And what tends to happen now is that when good material comes in, the auction houses just react and sell it. So the notion of a fixed calendar for, for auctions now is, I think, slightly out the window. Um, they just have to be as adaptable and nimble as possible, which which makes absolute sense. OK, so, this, I mean, obviously, the Botticelli has reached what it was expected to reach. Mm, does sure. that, how does that affect a potential vendor looking over this sale? How would they would they feel encouraged by this sale or, you know, because, of course, there must be a certain element of nervousness around vendors at this time because it can't you know if you've got something that you want to sell you must be weighing up the risks of selling it now absolutely when you looked at that when we watched that sale and then the auction says unsold that is going to put a chill down the spine of an owner of an expensive old master painting because it means that there's a 30% chance that your your work isn't going to sell and that's a high percent and, and if it doesn't sell then it and as i say it's it's burned it's tainted it's very difficult to place elsewhere at a at a comparable price so this market is in a in a, an awkward situation i think the botticelli okay it it's important for these hybrid sales to get high value lots um because traditionally certainly for the last 6 9 months or so People have thought, well, very wealthy people are nervous about entering lots into an online-only sale. So that's, in a sense, why the hybrid format was invented, to recreate some of the, at least some of the theatre of a live sale. And that encouraged owners of wealthy works to put in more valuable material. And obviously the solo heirs felt that confident about the, the process at Sotheby's they obviously liked the format were impressed by it and it did okay it, it's worth bearing in mind that it's not the only um, Botticelli that's come on the market in the last couple of years there was a you know a fully accepted portrait of a of a an Italian humanist that was offered at Freeze Masters and that was at 30 million dollars and then that same year, in 2019, a really interesting, what appeared to be an early Botticelli portrait with an Italianate landscape behind, sold at a Swiss auction for $9 million. And then you look at the estimate of $80 million, That's an enormous leap for this painting. And I know it was billed as the ultimate Renaissance portrait, and most important people who are knowledgeable at Botticelli accepted it, but... Not everyone is absolutely blown away and super enthusiastic about this work of art. So I think that price perhaps reflected that half a dozen very wealthy people didn't think it was a world masterpiece. Um, it just got two bids. It's really interesting that, isn't it? Because you listed that list of artists. Yeah. But it's not every work by those artists that, that, that appeal to 
collectors, right? Because no, even absolutely. within those, you have sub-brands, you know. Um, a Botticelli Venus, a Botticelli woman, sure. is probably more lucrative than a portrait of a man, I would have thought. Yeah, I know. And also, you, this is a very interesting point. You come to the whole issue of Rembrandt. Now, we all accept Rembrandt as one of the ten greatest artists who's ever lived, but that d- doesn't necessarily mean that a billionaire wants to pay... $50 million to live with a Rembrandt. You know, when if you stand back and look at Rembrandts, they're very dark, they're very brown, uh, they're not obviously beautiful. And it's not just in this contemporary era that Re- Rembrandt's always been quite a tricky sell at auction. And whatever happened to this little Rembrandt, which, you know, people who, who know a lot about Rembrandt really loved this painting. But it it was a tiny little thing, and it was $20 million. And uh, I know Rembrandt is a brand, but then the image comes in. And was it really that sort of, did it have that much wall power? I don't think so. I think this might have been a problem. Uh, obviously, there are financial technicalities with, I said, I don't know what has gone wrong. But ultimately, I would infer there just wasn't enough interest in it. And that resulted in its absence. Scott, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast to talk about this fascinating subject. Thank you. You can follow all our reporting on the Botticelli and the Rembrandt and find out more about a newly restored Rembrandt in Pennsylvania at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Coming up, we hear the latest news on Leonardo Salvatore Mundi and the artist Gerard Byrne explores a Stockholm diorama. But first, here are some of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. An exhibition of preserved human corpses in Birmingham in the UK may have included political prisoners executed in China, according to British parliamentarians. As Christina Ruiz reports, Lord Alton of Liverpool, speaking in the House of Lords on the 12th of January, said that the cadavers used in an international touring show called Real Bodies, which was seen at the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham in 2018, were, quote, probably people who had been executed in China. The bodies were obtained from a firm in Dalian, China, which is used corpses is acquired from the Chinese police, according to a previous investigation by the New York Attorney General's office. COVID-19 continues to wreak havoc with the art fair calendar, Anna Brady writes. Days after Art Basel announced its postponement from June to September, Tefaf Maastricht has followed suit. The Dutch fair, which had already shifted back from March to May, is now scheduled to run from the 11th to the 19th of September. Art Basel is slated for the 23rd to the 26th. And finally, the Centre Pompidou in Paris will close for three years from the end of 2023 for essential maintenance work, as Anna Sampson reports. The plan is for Richard Rogers and Renzo Piano's building, which houses France's National Museum for Modern and Contemporary Art, to reopen in time for its 50th anniversary in 2027. You can read all these stories and more on the website or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. With over 250 years of auctions, Christie's leads the art world with live and online sales in more than 80 categories. Christie's private sales allow for buying or selling fine art, decorative objects, jewellery and watches, all on your schedule. Art, anytime. Explore more on christies.com. 
Welcome back. Now, before we go on, do make sure you catch up with the latest episodes of our other podcast, A Brush With, in-depth conversations with artists about their influences and cultural experiences. The latest series features interviews with, among others, Ragnar Kjartansson and Rachel Whiteread. And the latest podcast is A Brush With, the American artist Charles Gaines. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you are currently listening. Now, on the front page of our latest print edition of the art newspaper, we look at recent scientific analyses of Leonardo's Salvatore Mundi, the most expensive painting in the world after it sold at Christie's in New York for $450 million in 2017. Alison Cole is the editor of the art newspaper and a Renaissance art specialist, and I spoke to her about these latest findings. Alison, the key thing in this report in the current print edition of the art newspaper and it's also online is that there are two new sources both of which come to a similar conclusion let's do them one by one so the first source is actually a really important source in the sense that it's the louvre can you explain what the louvre source is and what it tells us Yes, we have to go back to the louvre's major leonardo exhibition october 2019 when they were very much hoping that the salvatore mundi which is now owned by the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Culture, would be loaned, and it didn't end up um, materialising. But um, it seems that they published a book based on analysis of the painting that they'd undertaken, and these were sort of new scientific um, examinations, x-rays, infrareds, all sorts of things, that they had not yet published. And the Louvre book, which was being produced, was cancelled when the painting was refused, basically. Can you, can you say why it was cancelled? Because it, it seems extraordinary that they would go to the, all that length to identify all these scientific analyses and to actually effectively go the full length of producing a book, but then not end up publishing it. Yes, well, it's, it's a small book, but a very important book. Um, the Louvre basically is banned from publishing on a a privately owned work of art that they haven't displayed. So that was, I think, why it was hastily um, cancelled and suppressed. But um, a stray copy ended up in the Louvre bookshop and somehow we found out about that. And then another copy um, has materialised as well. So that's how these findings have come to surface. Okay, so go on with what it says. Well, it's by the uh, Louvre curator Vincent de Louvain, and they have a a special laboratory that serves the French museums that um, did the analysis. So two of the experts from that are also um, part of the publication. And they talk about the history of the painting, the controversies around the attribution. They talk about the provenance, but they then go into their scientific analysis. And there's a preface by the Louvre president, Jean-Luc Martinez, which confirms their view that the painting is an autograph, Leonardo, and their findings um, support this. But there are, new, there are new bits of evidence that question different parts of that attribution, right? I mean, one of the key things that this whole saga has exposed is the nature of workshops, right? So you can attribute a painting to Leonardo and there would still be parts of that painting that would be done by members of his workshop. And this was a common factor in Renaissance painting, right? Yes, I think this is the area that's really controversial and and which people are now studying in earnest. 
Um, Leonardo's school is not as well studied as, for instance, Raphael's school. And um, there's certain periods in Leonardo's uh, production, like, for instance, when he was in Rome, where he seems to have delegated an awful lot of his projects just to the studio. So what the Louvre findings um, showed is that the original design of the Salvatore Mundi didn't have the blessing hand that we now see. It was added after a time lapse, not necessarily a long one, and possibly um, the other hand was added quite late in the process as well. And therefore, we're looking at, you know, a, a head and shoulder bust of Christ originally. So there's this picture by Salai, who's one of the Leonardo followers, which is Christ the Redeemer, which is just effectively a straight portrait of Christ, right? <laughs> it is. It's thought to be a self-portrait of Salai, who was um, Leonardo's sort of beloved pupil and companion and was with him, you know, in Milan, in Rome and in France at the end of his life. And um, so it's a bold self-portrait as Christ the Redeemer and it's very much like the Salvatore Mundi without the arms. Right. And it's dated 1511. So did the Salvatore Mundi, the Saudi version, come before or after? Right. Interesting. So essentially, the argument, the possible argument from the Louvre is that this may have been a Christ the Redeemer that was later changed to be a Salvatore Mundi. I don't think they would go that far. I think for them, they're interested in, you know, the process of execution. So they're not... You know, there's nothing that necessarily denies for them that this is an autographed picture. But I think the interesting thing was looking at that finding in relation to other findings um, that have happened since the 2017 sale of the Salvatore Mundi for $450 million. So let's let's talk about the other piece of information then, because this is this is what I love about this is that artificial intelligence has entered the picture here. So this is a, this is an analysis by the Franks, so Stephen and Andrea Frank, and they, and they are um, an art historian scientist couple. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, Stephen is, a, he was a lawyer, and he then did a computer science degree and has um, also studied at MIT. And his wife, Andrea, is a generalist art historian who's um, specialised in visual resources for 35 years. So they've used this thing called CNN. So it's a, and I'm going to read this out, convolutional neural network. Now, neural networks is a standard form of artificial intelligence. We hear about these all the time. And this is a particular form of a neural network that does an analysis of pictures, right? Yes, they're used to analyse and classify images. And they're not usually used for works of art. They're used for things like facial recognition, self-driving cars. Um, the Francis have sort of developed a technique um, which is suited to looking at um, smaller images, i.e. paintings. And with this, they've taken sort of small tiles of pictures which can be... Uh, they've taken the entire Leonardo oeuvre, which is very small, less than 20 paintings, and they've also taken um, pictures by people of the same period in the same sort of style and pictures by a studio and associates and compared the tiles um, and put them through this sort of convoluted neural networks process. And, and is it right that the conclusion that emerges from this CNN is similar to that 
of the Louvre curators? Well, the, the similarity is that there is the arms are sort of classified in a separate way, um, but the conclusions are different. The Louvre, I don't think, would question Leonardo because they point to the phased execution of pictures like the Mona Lisa and also a hand was added to an angel in the Louvre Virgin of the Rocks. But there's, the Franks's had no particular theory when they embarked on this. Stephen is a great fan of the painting, finds it very enigmatic and mysterious. And so they were very surprised to find that their sort of probability map of which areas were painted by Leonardo and which weren't painted by Leonardo showed the blessing hand very strongly as not Leonardo and possibly the other hand as not Leonardo as well. Now, in terms of art historians, because we know from, and, and I urge people to listen to, the, to our other conversations about the Leonardo, we have very firm attribution from Martin Kemp, he, which he discussed on, on our, in our interview with him on this podcast. We then talked to Ben Lewis, who's a sort of sceptic, who's an investigative journalist, and therefore probing it without really coming to a conclusion. But one of the key things is achieving a certainty in attributing certain aspects of the picture or the whole picture to Leonardo. And, and it's interesting that Frank Zollner, who's an, a Leonardo expert, also has doubts about the blessing hand. Is that right? Yes, I think what was interesting for me about the Franks' findings was it did echo something that Zollner had been talking about since two, 2017, where he'd felt uncomfortable with the sort of waxy, pale look of the blessing hand. And other, other people have shared his view too. Some think it's a tour de force and proves it's by Leonardo. Other people think it's absolutely beautifully painted, but Leonardo didn't paint hands in that way. So Frank has been looking at whether Leonardo could have had studio assistance and maybe the studio or associates completed the picture later on because Leonardo was renowned for losing interest you know in in compositions and the contemporary talks about the fact that he tended to focus on the head and shoulders and then sort of leave the rest roughed out. Right so where have we got to then in in terms of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in terms of the attribution of this picture, which is ebbing and flowing over time, I mean, it seems to me absolutely crucial that Jean-Luc Martinez, as you say, the director of the Louvre, has come on, come down very firmly on the side that is, this is an autograph Leonardo. But do these latest findings in any way create further dispute over that attribution? I think they open up questions about the contribution of Leonardo's studio And there's very live questions around the provenance, about the date it was painted. Um, And I think a lot of sort of genuine disagreement amongst art historians, but also a sort of sense of genuine inquiry to try and find out when it was painted, for whom it was painted. Um, And the dating is very important because if it's early in Florence, Leonardo tended to believe in the sort of Florentine tour de force. When he went to Milan, the whole ethos was learn to collaborate. And then later on, it was delegation. So the dating becomes super important. Okay. I'm going to ask you 
your personal view? (laughs) What do you think? I feel there is a studio contribution. It's, you know, it's it's a, a strange painting. It doesn't quite hang together. For some people that adds to the the mystery and the the Leonardo-ness of it. For me, there's something that doesn't quite sit together. I suspect we might return to this again in the future (laughs) in the art newspaper and on this podcast. But uh, for the moment, Alison, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Ben. You can read Alison's report in the art newspaper on the website and on the app. And you can hear those podcasts I mentioned by searching the Week in Art archive wherever you normally listen to us. And finally, it's time for Work of the Week. This week, the artist Gerard Byrne talks about a diorama from 1893 in the Biologiska Museet or Biological Museum in Stockholm, Sweden, which is currently being restored. This panoramic display of Nordic wildlife inspired a series of works by Byrne, a photographic series called Beasts and a moving image work called Film Inside an Image, which this week opened in an online viewing room at the Curling Gallery's website. I spoke to Gerard about the diorama and his response to it. Gerard, I want to first ask you about when you came across this diorama for the first time. When did you see it? I went to Stockholm for the first time in 2006, the beginning of 2006, to do an artist residency. And it was actually this time, like January 2006, Stockholm's pretty wintry at that point. Uh, and, uh, and actually, it's a very, um, I mean, as a city, it's a city that's very outgoing in the summer. Like a lot of social life, a lot of nor- in normal times, obviously. Uh, but in the winter time, it's quite introverted. And, and as some, a recent arrival there, I didn't know many people. I had a lot of time by myself, a lot of time wandering around on in quite dark, snowy streets. And uh, with a guidebook, uh, as you did then, um, maybe a bit of internet. And then I, um, I stumbled across, uh, you go to all the little museums kind of thing that you do. And I found this place and I remember uh, it was quite a distinct experience because um, I went in, it was this amazing diorama, one of those 19th century curiosities that, you know, we stumble across in our travels. But there was something specific about it that was really, um, really palpable and, and, and I couldn't quite lay my finger on it. And um, only subsequently did I realize that at that time of year in that space, the roof, which is glass, was covered with a layer of snow. So all of the light inside the space had, was filtered through a layer of, you know, January Stockholm snow. Uh, I don't know how deep that was, but uh, <laughs> uh, it made for a very special kind of situation, you know, uh, and just alerted me already to just the relationship between uh, the diorama itself and some idea of the space outside or light coming from elsewhere you know but it's this, this curious thing that I, and it seems astonishing in that even in the 21st century it's closed for renovation now yeah but it but even in the 21st century it was only ever lit by natural light there was never any artificial light is that right yeah so uh, i mean i did a little bit of reading around the electrification of stockholm etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> And I suppose what's interesting about the diorama, which was built in the 1890s, is um, it's kind of built at this moment where, you know, Stockholm was sort of partially electrified. Uh, 
and there's, it's it's just it's just I think it's just symptomatic of kind of trying to rethink that that moment and why the diorama is as it is uh, is symptomatic of you know, brings up all sorts of questions about technology and the development of cities, but also about a late 19th century kind of craving for a natural world or as well as, you know, the central topics of the project, which is about this relationship between the diorama and photography and the slow separation of those things from each other, you know. So so, so when you look back to the diorama and you ponder why is it not electrified, like why is it not lit uh, artificially, you know, and this kind of weird kind of transitional moment in the in modernization, you know, uh, why it was never subsequently lit is another question. I think probably that's also symptomatic of a very um, precipitous kind of tumble into anachronism that the that the diorama had very early in the 20th century. And then since then, it's just kind of largely gathered dust as a space. And and what you see in the diorama is is effectively a kind of Nordic wildlife scene right yeah it's a kind of sweeping kind of literary kind of panoramic kind of span that that goes from mountain to moorland to coast to you know um, seashore cliff face mountain you know i can't remember the exact sequence of those uh of those different kind of terrains but it, it moves kind of seamlessly between each of those yeah and it's a 360 degree diorama and as a as a viewer you enter it from in a very elaborate way from below um and up through the middle of it that and that retains this kind of seamlessness which is very important obviously now tell me about this connection that you made between the diorama or the building which houses the diorama and the idea of the camera because that's effectively you're seeing that space as a camera and therefore in this in that analogy the snow that you talked about is like a filter over a lens right yeah well as i said the snow and that that experience of that strange light and and how that was directly affecting what i was seeing is you know where i just made that connection between what was you know physically in front of my eyes and more latent ambient you know circumstances you know in other words light reflected light so immediately that you know being as somebody who's worked extensively with photography and with lens-based media and as somebody who has had a long-standing interest in in a way the histories of photography and early photography and and this transition from digital from analog to digital for example these are all things that have been central to my experience as an artist working with those tools uh, I was, of course, sensitive to questions around the um, sort of evolution of photography and and the early and early photography, and recognised that um, that actually um, there was a time when photography and things like the diorama were not so clearly distinct from one another as technologies. There was a sort of indifference, and and that seems really hard to get your head around now. But but the, the simple way I can I can describe that is. You know, to talk of the diorama as a type of technology in the late 19th century, I can tell you that, for example, nature photography, something we take as a given, only really began in the decades around 1900. The first published photographs of animals in the wild, published in National Geographic, early National Geographic, 
or from 1906 or something like that. So, so in other words, at that point in the 1890s when the diorama was built, um, it was literally the kind of preeminent way of imaging um, the natural world. And that's fascinating because one of the things that particularly emerges from your film, we'll come back to the photographs mm -hmm. in a sec, but the thing that particularly emerges from the film is that obviously it's, it's the natural world through death right these yep. things are dead and they're, and they're animated in in static positions yep. and of course your film in some ways reanimates them yep. partly through the movement of the camera but then also with this soundtrack where you we as you pass each bird or animal you hear them their call mm -hmm. or whatever and so there's this curious space between life and death that you establish in this work <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, uh, and that's something that that wasn't sort of hardwired into the plan from the outset. You know, I mean, my initial plan with the project, with the film inside an image project, was to, um, you know, in a way reciprocate something that I felt the diorama was calling for, which is this, you know, three hundred and sixty degree view, and this sense of like immersion, right? That the diorama was this kind of early kind of immersive technology. Um, and so I got a camera and I got a crew and we, in a way, took our cues from the diorama itself and we made this seamless loop film that would, you know, in a way is quite clear, right? Um, and so, but as I was making the film, you know, one of the things that becomes obvious, as you say, is that it's a, it's a dead landscape, right? And it's, it's kind of, even though it's lit by natural light and it has a certain naturalism to it, it's also breathless. You know, there's no wind. Uh, there's like literally nothing. It's, it's a frozen space, a frozen moment. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of image, right? And it is an image. So I, I did, as an artist, have to ponder the question of, well, am I going to make a silent film? And uh, that was a possibility. Um, and I considered that. But I suppose it's it's that kind of um, Baldessari-esque kind of idea that, you know, you, as an artist, you do something, you, you find something, you do something with it, and then you have to do something else with that, right? And that's where that's when it has the potential to be art. And um, so I made the film and I realized that there was, I guess, something very binary about the visual dimension to it. And so then I started to think about the sound as a way of working with and against the image. And so it sort of works with the image in a way that is, um, it sort of antagonizes the image, as you say. And, and I laugh because it's, it's sort of uncanny and uncomfortable and humorous and, and, and intense and all those things. Whereas the image itself is actually quite reserved, you know. So there's a, yeah, there's a kind of weird dissonance between them. Yeah, so true. Um, let's talk about the photos then, because I'm fascinated by this story that you tell about the fact that you you wanted to shoot on film, mm -hmm. and there was a technical complication. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, as I said, the first step in the whole project was to make the the moving image work, the film inside an image, and you know the engagement with the project began around 2000 and. 15 with the production of the film I started to work on that and started to um, make plans to show it and, and actually the uh, initial commissioner for the work was the Mead Gallery in in the University of Warwick so I'm good shout out to those guys they were great so I spent a couple of years going back and forth working on the film production 
And all that time I thought, well, I have to be able to make some photographs in this space. It's a film project that's all about photography. I'm somebody who works with photography. There must be a way of making photographs in this space. And then I spoke to the director of the museum, who was a kind of, uh, the guy had been doing this all his life, Lars Eriksson. And he, um, he told me that he was retiring because in Sweden, it's one of those things, you reach a certain age and the government tells you you have to retire, right? So he was retiring and the owners of the museum had decided that it was an opportunity for them to close it for a period to hopefully renovate. I don't know what the plans are. So I went there to shoot and uh, it had, turns out that I had some problems with the film material. The Kodak material uh, I'd been using for years, decades I'd say. and. Um, it's complicated to explain because I was working with a large format camera, which I work with regularly, which means that you work with pieces of film that come in sheets. They're quite large sheets of film. And you load them one at a time into these canisters that, that hold the film. And you have to do that in either in a dark room or in one of these kind of dark bags that you put your arms into and you work blind. That's, I'm used to doing that, so I'm doing that, I've done that in hotel rooms all over the world, so I'm doing what I always do. And uh, it turns out when I open the fresh boxes of film, that the film is sort of damaged in the boxes. It's kind of stuck together through moisture or through something. It's been poorly stored. And um, so I had no choice because it's, you can't just buy film, you can't just drop, you know, go downtown and buy a new box of film these days. It's... I was there, the museum was soon to close, I was running out of time, so I had to use the material I had even though it was damaged <laughs> and, uh, and just hope for the best. And, uh, and then, yeah, I worked from there. But the, the curious thing is, of course, that, and as you point out in that text that you say that you wrote, you, you know, that, that film was becoming as anachronistic as the dioramic space yeah right? so so that you then established a connection between i mean you were thankfully able to to produce the images from those photographs yeah. but at the same time so you, not not only was there this camera connection but there was the, the film itself and the, the condition of the film related to the condition of that space the anachronistic condition of that space yeah i mean that's actually you know really the punchline at some level because you know i had been thinking through all these ideas about the early photography and what we'll call what we might call late photography right which might be a period we're in now right and 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 i had maybe rationalized my interest in the diorama and early photography as as on a critical level as a way for us to think about a kind of late photography moment so there's a period of time where we can see this is the period of time where photography is coming into being in the late 19th century and invariably, of course, there's a time where it'll slowly dissipate and evolve into other technologies, which is kind of the moment we're in now, right? We're, we're, we're living through it, right? So that was all very uh, lofty theoretical ideas that were guiding my artistic kind of direction. But what I didn't realize is how directly I'd be sort of bitten in the ass by that, so to speak, <laughs> uh, with the actual production of the photographs. And... And, and, and of course, when I had this moment uh, where the film was all messed up and I was just, I was desperate. I mean, I, I, I was really in a panic. It was desperate. It was not the plan. And, uh, and given that the museum was about to close, like within days, 
yeah, I worked in a kind of desperate manner uh, and I was pretty crestfallen and uh, did the best uh, we could to salvage the material. I worked with somebody who took a lot of time to get to develop the film very carefully to get the best out of it, even though the film was damaged as a piece of material. Uh, and then I had all these images, which were I initially saw them as damaged as well, uh, at least in terms of my original intentions. And I mean, of course, I could have had them all scanned into Photoshop, could have fixed them all up, cleaned them all up and made them pristine, right? But I realized, you know, that's where, you know, you learn from your own work as an artist. And, and this was the, the work telling me what it needed to be, I think. I don't want to be Zen-like about it, but there is, a, there is a way in which, as an artist, what's the point? If you're not going to learn from your own work, what's the point in making it, right? That is, in a way, the purpose of making work, right? So this was a moment where, you know, the, the work was teaching me a harsh lesson about the sort of ostensible uh, subject we were dealing with. Oh, it's a really powerful body of work. Gerard, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you. Pleasure. You can see Beasts and Film Inside an Image in the online viewing room at curlingallery.com. The Biological Museum is closed for renovation and you can find out more at scansen.se. That's S-K-A-N-S-E-N dot S-E. And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Judy Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Scott, Alison and Gerard, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.